I invite you to turn with me to the book of First Peter once again, right near the end of the New Testament. So we'll be in First Peter chapter 2, I think it's page 1014 or thereabouts in the Blue Pew Bible. First uh, Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 4. You know, I, I believe that from what I see, at least, that confusion reigns today when it comes to a most basic question within God's bigger church. And that question is, what is it? <laughs> what is the church? Or, or maybe, what does it mean to be a member of Christ's church? You know, anytime I, I hold an inquirer's class, I always begin uh, with that question, uh, partly because it's such a fundamental question, and I think immediately comes to mind, well, why even ask that? You know, that's what we do. We're, we're here. We're the church. Uh, but as we go through it, it helps, helps us to recognize all the wrong notions that are out there. And then what we do, we, we open God's Word and we go to different places. And from the Word, we kind of do a process of discovery. This, this is what uh, the church is and what it's all about. And, and sometimes I think that can be a surprising uh, process to go through. Now, of course, the the problem that we have with, with having a wrong understanding of God's church, you might ask yourself, well, what's, what would be the problem with that? Well, it's manifold. <laughs> there are many problems, but uh, if we have a wrong understanding of the church, we won't live as God's people. We, we're not going to mature spiritually as we should. There are a number of things on that side of things, but then on the other side, the, the church itself will be negatively affected. And so I, there's a need there to understand. I, I also think that even if we're on target and, and we have a good understanding of God's church from His Word, that we need to be reminded often about uh, the church and what it means to be a member of the church because it's so easy with the lives that we uh, live to begin to do church, uh, to uh, practice uh, that in a, in a way that we didn't even foresee was not uh, according to God's design, so we get off track. Uh, well, that's what Peter is doing in today's passage. He's, he's expressing to the people, and this is to be an encouragement to them, uh, that if you recall, this people are those who have been experiencing many challenges, difficulties. Uh, they've been suffering. There's unjust suffering clearly uh, with them, and he, he wants to help them. That's why he's writing this letter. And so here he reminds them in this amazing and beautiful way, uh, which we'll read in just a moment, of what it means to be a member of Christ's church. Now, uh, just briefly leading up to this passage, out of the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, uh, you'll know, if you've been here a couple of weeks, that he uh, has been directing them, instructing them and us in how to live, what we are to do. You can see it right at the beginning of chapter 2. Put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Put it away. 
Now, this is a, a command or a directive. Here's how you are to live. Well, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, he's going to go back. Uh, and he's going to, again, talk to them, give, give them instruction on who they are, on what they are to believe, what they are to understand. Uh, he did that in chapter 1, remember. Uh, now he's doing it in chapter 2. But here it has to do with the church, what the church is and what it means to be a member of the church. So have that in mind as I begin to read. I'm going to read chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 through verse 10. He says, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are, the, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me say a, a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank You for this, this word uh, from Your servant Peter for Your church, for the immediate audience that he was writing to, but more widely for all of those in Your church. This is a word that we need to have, we need to understand, we need to take in, we recognize that, and so we pray for your help in doing that this morning. Open our eyes, we pray that we might see, that we might understand, uh, shape our hearts and our wills, that we might take this, make it ours, and live out of it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as you look at this passage that uh, I just read, keeping in mind everything that we've read up to this point, if you would, try to imagine, now this might be a stretch for some of us here, try to imagine that you are a member of a football team, and right now you're a part of the home team, and you're in the middle of what has been a, a brutal game against a very accomplished opponent, and the score reflects that. And it's halftime, and you're headed back into the locker room, and as you look around at the rest of the team members, you see reflected on their faces the same thing that you're feeling inside this sense of discouragement. Because you know what's happened, you felt what you're up against, 
and you know that you're not done. You're still in there. You need to continue. And so as you get into the locker room, all eyes are focused upon the coach. And the coach starts into a 20-minute talk to the team. And then after those 20 minutes, you go back out to the field and you begin to play again, but now you're a completely different team. And you play differently. The discouragement that was there before is now gone. And you've got like new life and rejuvenation as you give heart and soul and you really begin to play as a team together. And at the end of the game, the score reflects that. Uh, you may have seen that before going to a football game. Uh, you may have seen it maybe on, on TV. It does happen. The question is, of course, what was it that was communicated by the coach to that team uh, during that halftime speech? Now, what you can be certain of is that he didn't just talk about technique. Now, this is what you need to do. This is what they're, they're like, so do this, do this. He didn't just talk about it. Now, probably part of it he did talk to some extent, but at the heart of it, he probably went back and talked about who they are as a team. He may have talked about what their year has been like and said, you remember when you were, you were on the field back in the summer and you were sweating, you were weak, there were guys that were passing out. But then as you proceeded through the season and began to work harder and harder and harder and we worked together as a team, you know now that you're prepared for where you are and you know who you are. And he may have also gone into what they have that sets them apart from any of the other teams out there, abilities, uh, advantages, all of that that the others don't. And then assuredly, one of the things that he would have done was to set their eyes upon the goal. He might have said, in this game, win or lose, there's a bigger goal that we're after. And so you can play setting your eyes upon that bigger goal because you know who you are and you know what you're looking forward to. That's the nature of a halftime speech that turns the team around. You know, I think in the church, sometimes we need a halftime speech because we get discouraged, don't we? Uh, and going through life, we begin to see things from a certain perspective that may not be the right perspective. Uh, there is hostility, there's rejection out there. We know just the gospel itself, just as we live our lives, uh, as those who are a part of Christ's church, there's going to be a, an enmity, a hostility that stands against us, certainly from those on the outside, or many, uh, and maybe some on the inside. Uh, we know all of this, and it can be very disheartening uh, and so we need to be brought back and encouraged uh, and given help, given comfort, uh, spoken to in a way that we, we know what we are about. You know, there are, there are a number, as you go through the Bible, 
Uh, there are a number of wonderful halftime speeches, if you want to call it that. Uh, our passage that we're looking at this morning is one of those, I believe. And in these words, you'll notice that Peter links together both the Old Testament and the New, spanning thousands of years, and he says that they are one. Uh, he says that the Lord has one plan and one purpose. There is one people of God. And he uses the Old Testament in today in talking about the church to bring that home. And there is a sense of encouragement just in that. That God's plan all the way through has been in one direction. He's not, he hasn't split it. There aren't two directions, two peoples of God. Uh, and if, if we think back to what we saw in chapter 1, Peter focused upon the salvation that we have in Christ. Here, he wants the people to see this is whom you belong to. This is the structure that God has given in Christ. You are the church. Both are meant to be an encouragement. And both are meant to result in a people who are ready to engage in the fight. A people who are seeking after holiness of heart. People who are able to face up to an adversity, up to adversity and live obediently and with purpose in this world. And so, what is it that we need to know as members of Christ's church that will inform us, that will encourage us, that will help us to persevere in the Christian life, help us to do that which we are to do with joy, despite the, maybe the suffering, maybe the difficulties or the challenges that we face? You know, here Peter, as you heard, Peter uses this common metaphor of the church as a building. And he gives four elements to this picture, this, this metaphor of the church. We're going to touch on each of these. And first, the first one is that you, the church, are founded upon a cornerstone. A cornerstone that is rock solid. Now, the very first reality that we must think about as we come to the church is, and it must be always, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is the basis for the church, the foundation who holds everything else together. And He's also the one who continually sustains the church. And so we get both of those pictured here. And it's in this, with this first reality in mind that, that Peter says, look at verse 4, as you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You know, he begins with the Lord Jesus, and he says, that's what characterizes you. And by the way, the yous, Y-O-U, in this chapter are all plural. Uh, so that's what characterizes y'all now, is that you're joined to Christ. Uh, you've come to Him. He said, both in the sense, I believe, that the sense is here, and most commentators seem to, both in the sense of uh, conversion, faith and repentance, you've come to Him initially, but also in, in this continual sense of coming to Him to be fed. Uh, as you come to Him, as you draw near to Him daily, as you feed upon Him. And then look at how Peter describes Him. 
He says, as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then he's going to add to that this quote from Isaiah 28. You can look at, see it there in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. And yeah, notice the same words there, chosen and precious. Uh, and so he's, he's adding this, th- these two uh, together. And he's showing that this is the stone I'm talking about. This living stone is also the stone that the prophets were looking forward to and that they, they, they said was coming. And Jesus himself applied this quote to himself. And so Peter's not the first one to do this. We find it in a number of places you know, throughout the gospel accounts. And the important image that the, the original hearers would have immediately thought of when they heard these words out of Isaiah 28, the cornerstone, uh, and then the other words that he shares would have been the temple. Uh, Jesus, Peter is saying here, is analogous to the very first stone that was laid in building of the temple and the foundation of the temple. In Jerusalem, there on the Temple Mount Zion, Uh, This would have been a massive stone, a perfect stone, because the whole building would have relied upon it. It would have been laid with great precision. And so this this great stone would have been there in the corner, you can imagine, where two walls would have come together and the stone underneath so that it becomes the support for the entire building, which, as we'll see in a moment, represents the church, as it does many places in Scripture. And so Jesus is that chosen and precious cornerstone dwelling amongst His people. Remember, that's the, that, that is the characteristic of the temple, place where God dwells with His people, upon whom the entire church is dependent. And then Peter adds to this metaphor, and he says that Christ is a living stone. Peter knows that in order to see Christ correctly in relation to his church. You've got to see him not only as the one who upholds the church, who holds it all together, but also the one who sustains the church, gives it ongoing life daily. He is the one who has conquered death. Uh, you remember uh, out of John chapter 11, remember Martha? Uh, her before Jesus, when Jesus said these words to her, it was at the death of Lazarus. Uh, Martha was upset. Martha couldn't see the way forward. And Jesus said these words, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. Christ is the giver of life. And the question for us, just as he was posing really to Martha, is do you see Christ in that way? Do you look to him as the source of life, future life? As we look forward uh, to Martha, he, he, he asked a very direct question. He said, do you believe this? Uh, in other words, have you made me yours? Do you believe that I am the one who is the first fruits who will go? At that point, he hadn't died yet. So who will go uh, before you? 
uh, and who will be the resurrection that all who trust in Him will follow. That there will be no more perishing, no more threat of perishing for those who are in Christ. Do you believe this? And not only that, when it comes to Jesus being the life, but do you remember another place in John, uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the, at the well, another woman who, very different, but she was troubled as well uh, because of her past, her sin. She was headed in one direction, seemed to have no hope in this world. Jesus said to her these words, everyone who drinks of this water that you are drinking of will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You remember how she was kind of thrown off by that? What do you mean? Water that keeps giving, that continues to give. I've never found that. Let me have that water. She was still thinking in physical terms. But he was saying this is far greater that as you, li- as you live your life in this world, I will continue to be the one that provides you with life, with nourishment, with what you need to see things rightly, to continue on with true life. Uh, and that's what this living stone is representing. It's Christ as the one who is the life giver, both in terms of what we're able to look forward to and as we live our lives today. And of course, the the question is there that was there for Martha. Is this the Jesus whom you know? Is this the one whom you depend upon? The one who is a living stone and a corner stone? Let me go on to the next uh, image because really Peter's whole point here is not just about Christ either as the living stone, the cornerstone. uh, And so it's not talking about us as individuals in relationship to him primarily, uh, but about the body that we are a part of. And so the second image is this. You, y'all, are a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Now here, I I think we get into the crucial part that's really at the heart of all this, the part that we don't want to miss. And the key here is likeness to Christ. Uh, Both Christ and the Christian believers in this passage are living stones. Now Christ is that massive, perfect cornerstone who is the beginning and end, the one who holds it all together. And we believers are says, likewise, stones. But we are being built to, uh, together to be a spiritual house. Look uh, with me at verse 5. He says, you yourselves are like, or you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now the key here, if you think Are you able to have that picture in your mind of this spiritual house that's being built up by individual stones, but they're placed together, and that's what makes the house? And and that really is the key here, that there are many, many stones together, one on top of another, placed together, 
to create this spiritual house. Otherwise, they're not just stones that are scattered in a field or, or laying by themselves. That wouldn't be a spiritual house. Uh, and so again, remember likeness as we go through this. You know, when, when Peter describes those who come to Jesus as also being living stones, he's implying that you're not what you were before. Now you've come. You've come to Jesus. And, and you're different than before. Your nature is different. You are now, your nature is derived from Christ's nature. There's a likeness. He's a living stone. You're living stones. Just as the cornerstone was chosen and precious, you too are chosen and precious. Just as the cornerstone was rejected by men, you too will find that you are rejected by men. We'll talk about the implications of that in a, in a moment. But notice here also that he's speaking about stones. He's not talking about bricks. I talked to somebody earlier this week uh, about it. Uh, now, I'm no, I'm no stone mason. I think, Jeff, you could probably give us some help on this and understanding this. But here's my guess uh, is that these stones that, that were being referred to, that they were, they were being used to build a secure house, uh, the temple. And therefore, if they're going to be placed one on top of another, they need to be chiseled and shaped and formed so that they would fit together with the other stones to form this house. And that's what seems to be in view here. And notice all the way through, this is a work of the Lord, that He is the one who's building the house. And so the stones must be malleable. They must be submitted. Now, a stone submits itself, right? Usually. But what about us? Are we ready? Are we submitting ourselves to the Lord Jesus and to that shaping, uh, to that forming, and saying, no, even though it's painful, this is what I desire because I know that this is right. I know that you're building me, not just individually into something that's beautiful, but even more so as a part of the body. You're in the process of chipping pieces off here and there, grinding off a chunk uh, here and there in order to build this spiritual house. That's what God does, but He does it in the context of His church. The stones are never intended, that's not the picture here, never intended to, to be scattered out one at a time. It's together that we are to be a spiritual house so that we can fulfill our purpose of being, and that's, that's where he goes next, of being a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, you'll also see this same picture if you skip down to verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You know, in the Old Testament, think about the priests. The priest would mediate worship. They'd be between the worshiper and the Lord, and, and they would facilitate worship, especially uh, in terms of the sacrificial system. Well, here, Peter's bringing out the point that every believer has been given access to the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer do we need that 
a, a man as a mediator. The Lord Jesus Christ has done that work and He is our great mediator today so that every single believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, able to be in close fellowship with the Lord. You may say, it doesn't look like me. I don't, I don't recognize that as I live my life. This is what the Lord has provided for, and that's why He calls us to the means of grace. That's why He calls us to obedience before Him so that He can do that work more and more of forming us and so that therefore we can have that type of relationship with the Lord. Every believer with equal and immediate access to God. And you think about it, this should show itself in our worship together with one another, and it should show itself in our pattern of living. And that's really, at its heart, the spiritual sacrifice that Peter is speaking about here. We are a people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And when we are living under the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing the Lord by His Word to do work upon us, to strip away idols in our lives, and going to the Lord in prayer, often calling upon Him as our Father, worshiping together with one another, reaching out to the world around us, this is the spiritual house that God is building. Again, emphasis on the word building. It's not done yet. Uh, and so when we don't see that in ourselves, He's calling us to, to see and understand who we are and then to submit to Him for this work. And again and again, in the context of the church, it is, and here's the term that's used out of this passage, it is the priesthood of believers in whom this is designed and intended to take place. And it can, when rightly, when, when that work is going on, it can have a great impact in the world around us. There's one commentator who said this, and I like it. He said, the Christian church is not primarily a social organization, but the new temple where the transformed lives of believers are offered as sacrifice to the glory of God. What a great picture. That is the church. Not just its design, but that's what the Lord is doing here and now. So, we're founded upon a cornerstone. We are a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. And then next, you, y'all, have been set apart, Peter says. Now, Peter is pointing out a division that exists. Uh, he says that true believers, those who, if you remember back to verse 4, those who come to Christ are in the church and they, they have Christ as their cornerstone. But then he says that others, including some of those who profess to be in the church, in the bigger church, lack faith in Christ and therefore stumble over Christ. Now Peter here again, he uses these Old Testament texts, I think, because he wants his audience to recognize an aspect of the church that I think we often downplay. I think we often even ignore because it's, it's difficult to, to deal with. And that is that there is a distinction between two different groups. 
And he describes them here by describing two different building projects. Uh, one of those building projects is the spiritual house, in which Christ is the cornerstone. Uh, we've already looked at that. Uh, the other is this project in which the builders are those who ultimately have rejected Christ. And what's at stake here? What he's pointing out, what's at stake are people's eternal destinies, uh, which are based solely on one thing, on whether or not they respond to Christ by faith. That's it. That's what it's based upon. Those who genuinely believe in Christ, he says, will not be put to shame. You can uh, look at verse 6 where it stands in Scripture. Uh, Behold, I am laying a, a stone in Zion. And, and he goes on, whoever believes in him will, never be, will not be put to shame. Uh, and not only that, they will receive honor. He says, verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. Now, we've got to see that he's saying these words, will not be put to shame, will be given honor in response to what the people are feeling right now in the world in which they are living. Uh, they, they are having shame cast upon them. They've trusted in Christ. They, they followed Him rather than the emperor. Uh, they, they have shame uh, and they have a lack of honor, but He's saying, no, this is the reality. You will not be put to shame. You will receive uh, honor. And then He addresses uh, the other side. He says, for those who do not believe, they have rejected Christ. And for them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know, Peter's just pointing out here that all, all who hear the gospel have this opportunity before them, one or the other, to choose Christ, to follow Christ by faith, to choose Christ or to reject Christ. Uh, it is, we are responsible people. And that choice is before all those who hear the gospel. And he says, for those who reject it, they will stumble over Christ. He will become a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. In other words, they are destined for judgment. You know, Peter just wants to plainly show how on both sides, this is not something that's, that's hidden away uh, and faith is that determining factor one way or the other. And so we who are of faith must seek people's salvation. We must look for them to know the Lord, but we must recognize at the same time that when it comes to friends, when it comes to neighbors, when it comes to, to family, uh, when it comes to those whom we may really desire that they would know the Lord, this shouldn't cause us a, a surprise, and it shouldn't cause us to doubt our own faith because it ultimately comes down to a person's own decision. Each person is responsible before the Lord. Yet, if someone persists in their unbelief, Peter makes it clear that they're actually fulfilling their own destiny. Uh, look at this. He, he's showing that two things are true at the same time. We talked about them in Sunday school for those who were there this morning. Look at verse 8, the second half. He says, He's talking about those who have rejected Christ, and he says they stumble because they disobey the Word, disobey the Gospel. That's responsibility. But then look at what he also says. True at the same time, uh, as they were destined to do, sovereignty of God. 
right? Both true at the same time. Responsibility, every single person, we approach it that way when we're evangelizing people. There's a responsibility that's there. At the same time, that wonderful comfort is there that God is sovereign over all things. And He is executing His plan as they were destined to. Both of those true. The Lord doesn't bring it all together so that we can see the whole picture before it, before us and understand it, but we do see it again and again and again and again throughout His Word, both being true. Now, I want to point out in saying these things that Peter is really wanting to inform these people and in doing so to encourage them. Now, he is speaking to a people who have been suffering, we, we'll see later in the chapter or in the, uh, in the book, uh, and unjustly suffering at times on account of their faith. And what he's telling them here is simply this. That will happen. And you know what's helpful to hear that? That will happen. There will be those whom you thought you were close to, and yet they, they not only rejected the faith, but they reject you in the process. And he's saying, this is built in. This will happen. And we know from God's Word that's true. We can go back to Genesis chapter 3, can't we? Genesis 3.15 uh, enmity, enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent of Satan. Uh, enmity from the beginning. We see it today in some of the relationships. And so he's, he's telling them, be encouraged, though, as you look to Christ. This will happen. This is there. But you are those who know Christ. Continue, and we are called to continue the work of of, of calling people to Christ, but do recognize there comes a point at which a person may continue in their own way rejecting Christ. Um, number four, so we've got founded upon a cornerstone, spiritual house, holy priesthood, you've been set apart, and then finally, you, y'all, the church, are here for a grand purpose. Yeah, I, I, I really think this is the point at which the coach who's speaking at halftime, he finally drives things home. Uh, he, he really sets before the team a vision and an understanding of who they are and what their purpose is. And that's what finally brings them back to the right place. It's kind of the excl exclamation point uh, here. And so having said all these things about who we are as members of the church and about those on the other side, those who have rejected the cornerstone, Peter says, verse 9, but you. <laughs> He's just talked about those who have rejected Christ. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light, His marvelous light. Remember, Earlier, the likeness between the living stone, which is Christ, and the living stones, which is the, the, the church together, this likeness that's there, that through their faith, uh, this people share in the honor of Christ. Through their faith, this people are precious and chosen. They are a chosen people, as he said. This people are precious and chosen. They are a chosen people, as he says here a chosen race. And through their likeness with Christ, who is the, the great high priest 
They are a royal priesthood. And they are called to be holy, like He is holy. You too, Peter has already said before this, be holy, a holy nation, and I will provide for that. And then finally, they are to be a people of His own possession, belonging to Him. You know, these words are not new, by the way, the words that I just read. Uh, they, they come out of Exodus chapter 19. Uh, this is shortly after Moses took the children out of Egypt, and now he's in the process of giving them the law, building, making this, affirming this relationship with them, covenant relationship with the Lord. And he calls them these things. And now Peter takes this. From the Old Testament, it's talking about Israel, right? The nation, God's people. And he applies it to the church. And he's just giving a picture of, of who we are in the church today. Uh, we're not a new entity. And don't think that, don't think that the church in the future is going to have this split uh, and there's going to be two peoples of God. No, all the way through, there's one people of God. They are always the one people of God who are by faith, uh, who have come to... Come to the Lord by faith. Yes, there's an outward sense, just as we have today, uh, of those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord outwardly, and yet inwardly there is this core of people. And that's, that's who he's speaking to as he applies these words uh, to the church, very comforting words. There's no concept here of an ethnic people who will be reinstated as God's people. Some of you know why I'm sharing that. This is one of the places we just see this clearly. Uh, there is something called dispensationalism that, that has spoken of these two peoples of God. Uh, it really began in the, uh, the 1800s, late 1800s, uh, by one man. But I'm, I'm just pointing out that's not the case here. There is one people of God all the way through. Uh, and and it's, it, it's a beautiful thing to be able to see that this is what we are a part of. This is the church. But there is a sense, of course, that they are a new people, that we are a new people of God. The Messiah has come. And, and therefore, out of that, we are able to draw close to the Lord, to know Him and to serve Him in a way that the Old Testament people of God, by large, could not have. And... Uh, we are an answer to that Old Testament question that was posed so clearly. Uh, well, I did preach through uh, the, uh, the book of Hosea at one point. And right at the beginning of the book of Hosea, it's really the, the troubling question all the way through. It's just about uh, to the time of the exile. And it looks like the Lord leaves His people. And, and the question that comes out of that book is, did God reject His people? And the answer that Peter emphatically gives here is no, far from it. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people. You had strayed apart from the Lord. You had gone your own way. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. This was God's purpose all along. The church is not a plan B for God. We're at the heart of of God's plan all the way through. And that will continue as we live our lives today. And that's why he then says, or he, he, I'm going to back up a verse, and after he has 
given the statement about who they are, chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, he gives their purpose as the church that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Think about those words for a moment. That you may proclaim, yes, with our words. Yes, with the gospel. We're told to proclaim the gospel. You know, uh, um, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, right there at the beginning, says, preach the word in season and out of season. That was uh, Paul's message to, uh, to, to, to Timothy. Preach the word. We are to bring forth the gospel to the world around us. But also... Uh, we proclaim the excellencies who has called, called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We proclaim that by who we are, by who we become, by who we live. Uh, we, we're living in the world amongst many others who don't know the truth. They don't know the answer, and we become that answer for them as we allow ourselves, as this whole chapter has, has spoken of, as we allow ourselves to be that spiritual house to allow the Lord to work upon us, to shape us, to build us more and more into that glorious spiritual house so that we are the people of God and we show to the world uh, this, this wonderful good news uh, that Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, that He wants to do that for you and you and you as well. That's the message that we bring forward. And ultimately, that's the message that we as the church are to proclaim. Uh, we're, not a, uh, we're not up on a hill with a, a lampshade over us. We're a light on a hill that's able to shine to the world around us. And so again, who is the church? And who are we as members of the church? Founded upon a cornerstone, a spiritual house and holy priesthood, set apart... Uh, from the world, and then finally, we are here for a purpose, to shine that light. Let's, let's make that our prayer and our goal as the Lord helps us to see what the church is all about so that we will continue. Let's make that our prayer, that more and more this will be a description of, yes, our local church here, but also in relation to the other true churches around us, desiring that they would shine that same light. Let me say a word of Father, as we read through uh, these things, we do thank you uh, that this is your work, that we can know that this is what you are building. You call us to submit to you. You call us to hear the call, to respond to the call, to follow you, to cling to Christ, all of these things. But then we can stand back and know, Lord, that you are sovereign over all things, that the gates of hell will not destroy your church. I, I pray that as we become discouraged and as our, our sight is taken off of that which you put it on, the great hope that lies ahead of us, Father, I pray that you'll continue to do that work of, of bringing us back, helping us to hear these words. Help us to help one another uh, to hear these words uh, and to be that, to be the church of Jesus Christ that you've designed us to be. We pray this in his name. Amen.